When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, this is Phil Town. And this is Danielle Town. Welcome to the Invested Podcast, where I am having a blast for the last five years talking to my daughter about what I love to do, which is invest in companies. And what I've been doing for 40 years and what she's been doing for, gosh, since about 2015 is five, six, six or seven years now. Yeah. Yeah, pretty good. Yeah, wild. And she's gone from like full blast merger acquisition attorney to now attorney slash writer slash financial investor. investor. Yeah, pretty cool. And uh, <laughs> we're hoping you guys are enjoying this journey with us. And perhaps some of you are on your own journey like this. Um, a number of, we teach a lot of students how to, how to invest and a lot of them are on this journey. A lot of these, of these students have, gone from being financial novices and not really having much of an idea of investing other than just diversify, you know, do what everybody tells you, um, to just absolutely doing their investing on their own in the style of Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger and other great investors. So we're excited. Yeah, and we're- a lot of people are coming along with me on on my side of it of the, holy crap, what the heck am I doing here? What have I gotten myself into? <laughs> <laughs> on the invested practice. <laughs> it's exciting. Fantastic. There's no doubt about it. It is exciting. It changes the way you look at the world so dramatically to Absolutely. realize that all these goods and services don't just appear magically and land on your doorstep. They're the result of a of a competition between companies that is full of risk and challenges and people working their tails off and luck and, you know, just so many different things go into it. But through the process of, and this is sort of the essence of capitalism, a number of companies rise to be franchises, to be companies that are, they're just fabulous companies and they have a kind of a monopoly. There's a recent um, video on YouTube by Peter Thiel. I'm not sure I'm saying his name right. T-H-I-E. Yeah, you're saying it right. Peter Thiel. And Peter Thiel is a very successful venture capitalist and multi-billionaire. And he just gave a lecture to Stanford a while back, which he put on YouTube, which I don't know how much longer is going to stay up there now that he's been the subject of some criticism for having a multi-billion dollar IRA, or is it hundreds of millions in his IRA? Anyway, he's no, quite a loaded IRA. No knowledge about this. A Roth IRA. So he never has to pay taxes on anything in it, um, which he's done using the rules, right? And so on. But anyway, there's a little bit of controversy. So he may be pulling back a bit from um, controversial I mean, statements. He has never pulled back from controversial statements. So I highly I doubt that he'll so start. So this thing, this thing is on YouTube. Just Google it, Peter Thiel. Uh, Competition so what did for, you like about this? What, what, sorry, what's it called? I think the title is Competition is for Losers. Okay. <laughs> it's somewhat of a controversial statement, right? 
There's another view of it, and that is competition is for the competent, which is something that a teacher of mine used to say. But Theo is saying it's for losers. And what he's, what he's saying in a controversial way is that great companies get themselves into a position where they're really not competing with anybody. And if you're trying to start your own company, you're a fool, in, I believe in his words, to start a company that's going to be competing with someone else. You should start a company that has its own little niche and it's not competing with anybody. And this is the essence, I got to say, it is to the heart of our investing strategy is to find those rare companies. They're not rare, but they're, there's not everywhere. To find these companies that are, that have, in Charlie Munger's words, a huge moat that protects them from competition. So Buffett says it a little differently. He doesn't say competition is for losers. He just says buy companies that are protected from competition in some way that's intrinsic to the company itself so that it becomes durable. It's a durable advantage. It sticks around forever. So as an yeah. example, uh, you know, we've used this example in the past, but it's a good example. Burlington Northern Santa Fe is a railroad owned by Berkshire Hathaway now. And if you want to compete with them on hauling coal from Wyoming to Atlanta, let's say, <laughs> to, to pick another controversial subject, right? Um, you would have to build railroad tracks from Wyoming to Atlanta, which is, I think, impossible. I mean, they can't even put a little pipeline down someplace, much less run railroad tracks diagonally across the United States because the right-of-ways aren't available, cities are in place, highways are in place. The cost of doing it, even if you could get it permitted, would be uh, unbelievable. And all of this just to compete with a railroad that's hauling coal, which may someday go out of, uh, it might just disappear. So this is a, an example. Railroads have an intrinsic characteristic, railroad tracks and the right-of-ways, mm. that make them very difficult to compete with, right? I mean, airlines, same thing. They, they have the gates at, at uh, like uh, Atlanta Airport is the biggest airport in the world. And if you have gates at Atlanta Airport, those are extremely valuable. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a. I I think it's a to talk about a moat and a mature company. Clearly, there's massive competition in both of those examples that you just mentioned. So it's not so much about a lack of competition. It's about having the the walls up, the protection, the moat that makes it really difficult for other companies to come in and take away your gates at the Atlanta airport or somehow create another line between wherever you said and Atlanta. Yeah, so there's a continuum, right? It's it's like there there's a company where you're cleaning houses and you have no distinguishing characteristics from anybody else that's cleaning houses and I can hire five different companies to come and clean my house where it's just pure competition and typically on the basis of price, which is right. brutal. So maybe there's actually three levels because I think what, what Peter Thiel is saying is is something that's a lot more, and I have not watched the speech, so I don't know what he's actually saying, but it sounds to me like something that's pretty common in the startup world, which is it's a lot easier to start something, gather investors, get excited, and disrupt an industry that you're essentially creating, which I think is maybe what he means by 
choose something that has no competition instead of creating something that already exists out there and you're going to come up and be the upstart that's Mm -hmm. trying to take it over. That's very hard to do. Mm -hmm. And so that's why as a VC, which is what Peter Thiel is, he likes to find companies that are creating something that has never existed before because that's exciting. It's often where early money is to be found. Uh, this is this is totally your area of expertise in the law and you've worked in it for many years and it's a it's really interesting that you could as a venture capitalist then just de- de- be determined you're not going to invest in things that are not disruptive companies. You know, you want to get the next the next great the next Big thing. What do they call them? Elephants? No, unicorns. The yeah, the unicorns. The I mean, Peter unicorn. Thiel made his money on PayPal, which was that. It was something that you could say was competing against all the credit card companies, but in reality, wasn't because what they were creating was a way to pay for stuff online really easily and transfer money between people. That mm-hmm. didn't exist. They invented mm-hmm. that, mm-hmm. and so I I think his. His perspective as a founder, as a startup guy, as a VC, is that that's, that's where the early money is. Now, whether or not that company can grow and last for 50 years is a whole different set of criteria and parameters, and not one that he necessarily cares that much about. But it is what Buffett cares about. So it's two really... I see them as two really different circles, but with overlapping values. Does that make sense to you, having seen what he was talking about? Yeah, I, I, it really does. And I would, I did venture capital for a while, and, and, and it, you know, I wish I'd had that view of the thing as well then. But you do sort of automatically have that as a, if you're doing venture capital or, or angel capital, early, early stage stuff. You know, you're, you're really looking for something that doesn't exist. Yeah. In the world because it's too hard to just start from nothing and compete with somebody that's just that has huge resources. Yeah, oh, like look at yeah. Square, which is something that we've talked a lot about. We've had the founder on here. That's a company that kind of did both in a way. They created something new, something that the credit card companies were were never going to do, which was mm-hmm. a way to pay for stuff using a card while you're out and about at a farmers market. Genius. We needed it as a world. Yeah. Perfect. But they were up against the standard payment methods and the incredible moat that they had built around themselves. Mm-hmm. And I mean, somehow, and I think even like, he's not really sure exactly how they did it. Um, somehow they got the credit card company, Visa and MasterCard to agree to allow their cards to be used on the Square platform. And that is what set them off. And he says in the book, um, Jim McElvey, what the, what's the name of his book? Innovation Stack. Thank you. Um, he says in the Innovation Stack, which is a fantastic book, that no, that other startups had tried to do this before, had tried to get the credit card companies to be used on their various platforms, and they had always failed. And somehow Square convinced them. And that is what allowed them to not fail in that moment. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, so, I think he does think it's a, a little bit of a miracle. There's a vice president at one of the big companies who, who decided, ah, I don't, there was just a, a, it a just, group of things that came together. It hit. And I think yeah. and I think to their credit, they saw that this was needed in the world. This was something people would use the heck out of. 
and they did. By the way, Jim Jim McElvey is one heck of an interesting story as a human. I mean, really lovely guy, first off, and a glassblower by trade <laughs> who <laughs> had had an interest in startups and had been involved in actually building an, an early stage startup um, with Jack Dorsey, uh, who he hired at age 15. Michael, oh, yeah. You know I, rem- I remember that Dorsey. from the book. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, who, who was yeah. a co-founder of Square and the founder of Twitter and who just stepped aside, by the way, yeah. as the CEO of Twitter. So uh, Jim's an amazing story. He loves he loves his art of glassblowing and was trying to solve a problem he had as a glassblower, and that is to let oh, people right. buy his stuff. Yeah, that was, was the just origin a small story. Business. Yeah, totally. A tiny yeah. business, right? And they wouldn't yeah. touch him because he was too little. Right. So right. there they go. They created a monster. So there's the problem. How do I solve it? Right. That and like that companies... is like the perfect venture capital pitch right yeah. there. Here's yeah. the problem. Here's the simple way I'm going to solve it. Let's create it. <laughs> That's awesome. That's the pitch. And uh, and uh, you know, there's I a had lot a pitch of, once. There are a lot of good ideas out there that don't necessarily make it to like <laughs> the, the ringing of the bell on the Nasdaq, <laughs> but here, still you can make money off out of them as an investor. They usually sell. Well, here's an example of the kind of pitch that I got at one. I got at one point. Not an example. This is an actual pitch that got made. Here's the problem. Energy isn't free. Here's a solution. Free energy, a perpetual energy machine, and I've built it. Well, that right? sounds fantastic. Doesn't it? It does. So if it's that obviously fantastic, what is he doing talking to a young, early stage investor without a lot of money? Get a couple million dollars, okay? It's like, why aren't you at the biggest venture capital companies uh, in Silicon Valley? And he had all his reasons why they were going to steal his invention and, you know, all of this total crap. And what it really came down to when we started digging in was that it he had reinvented what effectively was Honda's rotary engine. Okay. Which was ridiculous. He had basically didn't even realize that this rotary engine had been around a long time, number one. and that I don't know what two, that is. Is that something that goes in a car? Yeah, it's like, yeah. Okay. It was a standard Honda engine. And he didn't realize that, number one, it was already out there in one of the forms that he was designing. And number two, that the least knowledgeable physicist would tell him that he's operating against the laws of nature and that his machine would never work and it doesn't work the way he designed it. And, oh. you know, and so we didn't invest it. We simply got a guy who we knew had a, had a background in engineering to take a quick look at the plans. And he just laughed. He said, yeah, this scam has been coming around off and on for years. And it, it's so amazing when you're doing this early stage stuff that there's very little that's really new out there and very hard to find something that's disruptive and completely new. It's just so, so many people try every day. To create Absolutely. this next biggest unicorn company, you know, Absolutely. so you know the Jack McElvey is and Jack Dorsey or Jim McElvey and Jack Dorsey are are enormously brilliant and lucky uh, people who figured things out and and resourceful and disciplined and persevering and good managers. And good uh, there's managers. a lot to that for building. creating a company. And just just yeah. to finish on Jim McElvey, he was 
he's just, I believe, just been appointed as the chairman of the Federal Reserve in St. Louis. Oh. So one of the 13 Federal Reserve banks or regions out there, um, having, you know, made himself a multi-billionaire. Actually, since we, since we j- just got to know him in just the last few years. It's really interesting. Square has just exploded in value. Yeah, well, I, I know that so that's very what well. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Anyway, back back to what we're here to talk about, um, which is what? Yeah, well, you started talking about, <laughs> out of the blue, Peter Thiel's speech about competition. I did, well, that was because um, I was wandering around and wandering around, yeah. thinking well, so, things about this investing we do. So um, we talked last time about... Um, the checklist process we were continuing to talk about the logistics of that i also have in my notes that i think a couple of episodes ago we sort of got off onto some kind of thing at the end about net nets and baskets that we've clearly like moved away from that but i have it in my notes and i think that we should talk about it at some point but i would really like to close the loop on this checklist brouhaha aka we've been through the checklist for hours how do you actually run the checklist in real life okay so you've done the munger four in your head you've done the ackman eight with research you said it last time it takes maybe a week a few days a week depending on how many people you have working on it okay so then you get to the to the end of that mm-hmm. and you're like man this is fantastic right. i have found zero holes i'm obsessed i need to run my checklist to make sure that i haven't missed anything because i'm sure i've missened about a hundred things okay right what pretty happens close. then pretty close well first off there's never zero holes so that's always i was being a little bit hyperbolic <laughs> okay so now now i start the process of going through the the full 90 question checklist, um, which by the way, isn't in itself exhaustive. So this is, wait a second. So this is at the point where you now have, you've read the annual reports, you've got industry research, you've Mm -hmm. learned about what's going on. You're feeling Mm -hmm. comfortable with this company and this industry. So like kind of like the research is done. Yes, pretty much. No, no, no. No. The research begins. So you would you would call that only like you consider before that to just be preliminary. Preliminary. So is so, this checklist because this was my sense going through it, is it in a way not so much a checklist of have I missed anything, but more a checklist of due diligence? Yes. What yes, okay. Yes. Um, that, so that was my impression as we talked about. At this about point it. going into the checklist, we have a pretty strong idea of a few things. Um, the number one thing we have a strong idea about at this point is we really are fully capable of understanding this business. It doesn't scare us. Okay. We're, we're not going to now spend a bunch of time on something and realize, oh, crap, I, I don't know what these guys do, really. Okay? So that's, that's number one. 
Mm-hmm. And number two, um, we are very confident that we've got a big moat. Hmm. There's, there is a moat. We can define it. We, we can see it. It's not difficult to spot what is preventing competition against this company. Why do they have a quasi-monopoly going here? Why hasn't somebody else jumped into this? These guys are 10 years old. What, so we can answer that question. We have a very strong understanding of that at this point. And and we should, because it should jump right out at you um, if you've got a company that, in fact, has a great big moat. shouldn't Mm -hmm. be hard to spot it. Mm -hmm. Um, And then we have some degree of understanding about the management team. Um, Often that's where an issue is. I should say sometimes that's where an issue is. It's one of our scariest issues um, that we have to resolve. Um, but in general, we like the management team and hope, you know, plan on seeing them stay there as long as forever. And then finally, we have run a preliminary view of valuation on this company, running it through all three valuation metrics because they're pretty fast. You know, you can do that in that in the eight step process and see that you've got a a reasonable price to value proposition here. Okay. But we, we don't know for sure how we're going to value the business, but we're in the ballpark, we think. Um, particularly with the 10 cap, we feel very strongly that if we have a, a big moat company and it's got consistent numbers that's predictable over a long period of time, um, going through some sort of event right now and put it on sale, but the numbers are staying good, right? I mean, classic, classic stuff is, uh, well, gosh, right now, I mean, classic is Alibaba, right? I mean, just fabulous numbers and they're not changing dramatically as as a result of any Chinese interference in its business. And it's got a huge moat and it's just virtual, virtually a monopoly practice in, in what it does and has 70% of the market and it's growing its whole AWS side of things gigantically. So, you know, and here we had an, an event and a really more than anything, an emotional event going on with regard to the uh, legislative and we call it legislative governmental action in China potentially affecting the company, potentially the United States delisting Alibaba. Um, the the premier of president of China um, had an agency within the Chinese government that was suggesting that Didi be delisted out of the United States for security reasons. So there's a lot of, a lot of noise going on. A lot of cannons are going off. All right. So but, you've got a decent sense from preliminary research. Yeah. Of what's going that, on, and that we think we think we understand what's going on there. Okay. All right. So, um, so now we dive into the into the hard work, and the hard work is getting deep into this industry to try to discover if there's kind of like a reporter trying to discover if people are telling him the truth. Right. You're going out and you're interviewing this person as a re- think of yourself as a reporter. It's a really good way to think about it, and you're interviewing this person. You're reading this this dossier and you're looking for, you know, you've got all these people that want to tell you what's going on for sure. Right. No question. How many people are going to tell you what's going on? You've got um, people writing about this company every day um, and you can read tons of stuff. You can Google everything. But what you're trying to figure out is who's lying to me. Who's telling the truth? Because you've got people out there shorting this company and you've got other people saying, no, no, it's no problem at all. So who's, wrong yeah we've got to figure out right but like (laughs) okay so do you go straight to the checklist or are you saying there's now an intermediary step now now we start down the checklist 
to, okay. and but that's the point of the checklist. We're, that's what we're after here is to figure out what did we miss when we did the Acmenate? What's what is wrong with our picture here that makes it look so good? And we're right, and everybody else who's selling the stock is wrong. How is that possible? These are all, <clears throat> you know, basically smarter people than me, and yet I'm arrogant enough to think, oh, I'm right and they're wrong. What 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 am I missing? So I have okay. to I have to just start that process. And the the checklist is designed to keep me humble by having things in the checklist that I know I've missed in the past that mm-hmm. have burned me badly where mm-hmm. I wasn't humble and I let hubris get a hold of me. So um, we just start down the checklist. Who so else what is in happens? This deal? Do you print it out? Oh, yeah. It gets printed out into a book. No, 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 no. Not when it's done. No, no, no. Oh. We're, we're, we are right now oh, at... Not then, huh? You just finished... Uh, deciding that you have a decent sense of what's going on. You now, finished all this preliminary stuff is going research. Into, it's going into Evernote. So you don't print out the checklist. So you, you yeah, keep it. Yeah, we do, but not now. I'm talking about right now in our well, timeline. I know you're here. talking about right now. You asked me if we don't print out the checklist. Yeah, we do print out the checklist when so we're done with it. Here we are in our world <laughs> in which you've just finished the preliminary research. We can't move forward in time. It's impossible. Okay. So. What am I happens? printing it every day as we as we start to fill it out? No, okay, it's all going into Evernote. It stays on a document page. Is that what it is in Evernote? So you're a lawyer. You ask these questions and they way call them too notes pointedly. In I don't I'm know. Just it's trying in Evernote. to find out if it's on paper or if it's on a computer. I'm telling you, it's in Evernote. Does that sound like paper? No, that's computer stuff. Evernote, Evernote. Okay, so it All stays right. in the document. Yes. Jeez. How hard is that? All right. How hard is that? So Evernote <laughs> is where it stays. I think we have that established. Great. Logistically. And so then as you, uh, like, do you go through them in order? Yeah, pretty much going down the list. And um, each one of these things can become a document or not. It can become a separate document within Evernote. Um, ultimately, there'll be one document that's called the checklist or, or the rules story is actually what we call it. So mm-hmm. if I want to just see the whole thing, you know, 20 pages, 30 pages, whatever it is, I'll just go to the story document. And mm-hmm. if I want it printed, I'll print that. So that'll be the summary of everything that's there that we study. But everything gets a most things get their own document. So, for example, if I'm looking at um, who else is in this. I'm going to right. I'm going to that's radar. First thing on the checklist is who else is in this? Why? Why am I alone here? What other right? investors are are yeah. looking at it? Or I'm going to dig into why they often have written it up in a annual letter or quarterly letter. And hmm. and we're going to put those letters into this Evernote and um, and then really just a summary of why I think I can understand this business. What how am I connected to it hmm. in some way? Do you keep it like, so each point on the checklist is like a line or two. Do you keep it like, here's the prompt, and then you yeah. write below yeah. that? Yeah. Or is it more free form? Well, it's, I mean, each question, um, some of the questions are, are just real quick. And so they're just in the document 
um, in the checklist that we have as we're sort of building it out. We've got one document's a story, and we're answering the questions in the story as we go mm -hmm. and summarizing the research into that story. And so sometimes it's just quickly a summary right there. But if there's something really where we've really been digging, um, we might, for example, summarize an entire book that is very pertinent to this particular business. Like, for example, when I was looking at railroad businesses, it would be a summary of um, the inner, um, oh God, what do they call it now? It's where, the, where they take the containers, the container systems that they use to bring uh, goods from China over to the United States that then became an intermodal process where you mm. put it from the ship onto a trailer. And that was never governmental ever. There was never a moment where they said, uh, some overarching authority said what kind of trailer to use, right? So it's just was yeah. developed. That's how my stuff came from the US to Switzerland. I had a container and the guys in Boulder loaded up the container and chose the one that would be able to be shipped. And then it sat in Boulder for a long time while I <laughs> wandered about and then <laughs> eventually got put on a ship. Well, it went from Boulder to a ship somewhere, I guess, on the East Coast. It probably went from Boulder to a truck and from well, right. a truck to a train station. Yes. And from a train station to a ship. Correct. And then it landed in the Netherlands and then it was brought from the Netherlands on a truck to Switzerland. There you go. And it all worked. And the trailer, the container arrived and I was like... It's my container from Boulder. <laughs> it's the same one yeah. that all my stuff went into over like two years ago. It was crazy. So this is called intermodal freight, and it, it is was genius, and no one person ever figured it out, unlike Square, right, which is mm. a couple of guys. This was just an entire industry working it out over a period of time. So I didn't know that. And, and to understand a railroad company, you have to know that. You have to... Understand See, what don't that's you all love about. this? Like, what a cool thing that you know that. Yeah. I mean, I even had a container and I never really thought. I just thought, oh, yeah, of course it works because, like, <laughs> people send stuff. So it has yeah. to. And so now every time I see a train go by with all these different containers from different companies, I'm just, like, amazed, you know? It's just like, that's astonishing. It's, it is. It yeah, is. Yeah, it's pretty cool. So that's that stuff gets written up when it's key like that to understanding a moat about the business, or understanding how the industry works, how competition evolved, we, we might summarize an entire book into its own document. Um, interviews of uh, key players in the industry, interviews of, oh, we'll, we'll get analyst reports. And we think there's an aspect of the industry we, we just simply gotta make sure we understand it right. We think we do. We'll go to whoever's the expert in the industry and pay them. Uh, for their analytical reports, which they make and they sell. Mm -hmm. And that's right. And then we'll get that. And it's really quite amazing. I, we have yet to get an analytical report that was shocking to us in any way, that's which good. tells us that we're doing pretty good on yeah, our own research. Yeah, that's a very which good tells sign. you guys, you should be able to do that. Like, don't be intimidated that there's these super smart people out there who are going to get it better than you. They're just in the business and have dug it for a while, right? They've just been around it a while and have dug deep into it. Yeah, no, um, when I found out that these research, I don't know what they call them, like that's essentially like a, a, a address book of experts and mm -hmm. 
investors pay, if professional investors pay a lot of money to have access to these experts. And it's a, it's both a great service and kind of a weird service because yeah, like it's all stuff that you could learn. But on the other hand, what essentially what you're paying all that money for is quick access is somebody to say like, Oh no, 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 that part's not important. This is the part that's really important that you may have not realized because you haven't been working here for 20 years. Looking for that one time. There's this huge thing you didn't get. Yeah. Right. About it. Um, by the way, most of the people who buy those reports are obviously professional investors and almost all of them are. And most of them are running funds that are very diversified. So they just don't have time to look deeply into 200 companies especially yeah. when they're going to own them for three months. But I do know some investors who invest like the way we do and they use it as that kind yeah. of like quick way in to say like, what's important, what's not important while right. I'm learning about this and, and have found it. I've heard it's been useful. I don't know if it's necessarily worth the money because it's a lot. To it's lay it's out. a little bit of money. It's it, it is a bit of money. Um, and it's almost like, I would imagine you as a lawyer would do due diligence on something and you just are checking the boxes, all of them, to make sure that there's nothing missed. And, yeah. you know, if you have to pay some money to get a box checked that's important, you do it. Oh, um, yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's like, yeah. So lawyer, you know, lawyers do due diligence. We don't call it due diligence. We call it research, right? Analytical uh, research. Yes. So, yes, it, for me, this is a due diligence process. And I... Uh, love my due diligence checklist because otherwise you forget things. <laughs> <laughs> and that's essentially what, what we're talking about here. But the logistics of it, I think, are are very straightforward. You just go down the checklist one item after another. You basically create a document whenever there's significant data that you need to record that you got in order to remember it. Um, you make a document for that and name it whatever that particular question is that you're answering. And you just go through it line by line like that. And it takes, depending on how difficult the industry is, it can take a couple of weeks for two or three people doing it. So, you know, we're talking about a lot of hours here, Mm -hmm. you know. And um, up to, it can take longer. I mean, it can take a trip to China. <laughs> which is something we do, right? Um, In other words, to get a to get a better sense of it, we you might have to go make sure that you've kicked the tires, and that might mean you got to leave uh, leave your office, leave your home, and go down there to the store, buy stuff, talk to employees, and summarize these things in a note in in Evernote. Well, I just, you've mentioned Evernote a million times, so I'm just going to say there are other options. There's Notion, which a lot of people are really liking these days. There's Google Docs, there's Word Docs, there's uh, GoodNotes, there's paper notebooks. Isn't that the the toughest thing about about the tech industry is you, you're Evernote and you come up with a much better idea. Yeah. And now, several years later, what is it? There's Notion, there's, (laughs) here they come, right? No, because I'm trying to... Like, I feel like I'm just starting to, like, get my brain back a little bit. And so I've been, because we've been going through this checklist, I've been um, really thinking a lot about my process and redoing my, redoing my process, essentially. And so I've been, like, looking at these different options and thinking, like, how do I want to do this? I've been watching 
YouTube videos on how to take notes and I'm like obsessed with all these different things people are doing. It's amazing. I want to have beautiful investing notes. <laughs> and it's, I think the most important thing for any of us going through this process of trying to make it work for ourselves is failure is useful. It's frustrating as hell because I often have been make, have been spending time like making a nice chart and then I realize once I use it that it's totally useless and never going to be used. Mm. But at least I spent the time to learn that that didn't work and then I never have to worry about that option again. And my hope is that as I iterate my way through this, I find a really good method for me um, which not only is a good note-taking method, but specifically supports the due diligence, the research, and the eventual expensive errors checklist to go through, well, which encourages our, our each style. part of that. You know, we all, we all our have style. our own style. And I think that if you if you think about this seriously as a beginning investor, what you should be thinking, I think, is pick something that you're fairly confident you can understand and then really do the whole thing. Go just grind it out. Yeah. You know, just every single step that we've talked about now off and on for the last year, just do it once and probably it'll come out at the end of the thing and you won't invest in this company. Just assume that you're not going to invest in the company and just re but really go through this deeply one time really deeply and you will learn so much so quickly relative to picking away idea. at it you know yeah go deep and i will i think that's a great idea and i will add from experience that what i've ended up with is a heck of a lot of random notes in random notebooks and on random note-taking apps <laughs> that all are a mess and really are frustrating when they all make sense to you right after you're finished, but you come back to them two years later and it makes no sense and you can't find anything. So uh, separate from the- That sounds the, terrible for a lawyer. You should be like notes connected to summaries and all that from just your training. No? I mean, there's no should. Like <laughs> lawyers don't have magical, you know, apps that work for investing. Well, that's there's, probably true. There's a lot of different, I mean, we used um, Excel for our due diligence checklists. So oh, I tried to Lord. use Excel, but it turns out it's not so great for a lot of words. So that doesn't work that well, right. it turns out, for investing stuff. Well, maybe we can talk some more about how you're doing this, but I, I think. I think we, I would be, I would love actually to talk about it more when I have something to talk about. Because I need to, I need to make this thing work for me. And um, I keep thinking I, I've made it work and then I keep on sort of failing with it. It's like, it, like in a way where it's not, it's nothing to do with the, un, it's not, it's not substantive failure. Then imagine, it's not this. the company. It's try not this. the research. Try this. Try this. Try writing a newspaper article about the company. No, no, no. You don't understand. It's not, it's not substantive. It's not the company. It's not the research. That part's fine. Well, it sounds like you're not, you're not finishing. 
Um, you get all this random stuff all over the place. And two years later, you come back, you don't know what you've got. It sounds to me like you never finished it. It's like you're trying no, to build a car not... and you're not finished. And you come back two years later and it's got the parts of the engine laying around the floor of the garage. You don't know what it is. Um, we'll talk about, about that, that next time. We got it. We got Because it's not go. that I'm not finishing. I think it's that my standard of what finishing is. We got to go. It's time to go. Okay. We'll come back to this next time. <laughs> and we can talk about your standard of finishing where perfection might be getting in the way of good enough. And we'll see. No, no, okay. that's not happening. We're stopping now. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, everybody. Bye, everybody. Bye. <laughs> time to go play. Hi, guys. Thanks for listening to Invested. If you enjoyed this episode and you want more information or to listen to additional episodes, visit our website at investedpodcast.com and sign up for my virtual workshop right there. Spots are definitely limited for this event. I'm not kidding. They really are. They sell out very quickly. So everything discussed on this podcast, by the way, is either my opinion or it's Danielle's opinion. And I'm really important. It's not to be taken as investing advice because I am not your financial advisor nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. So remember that. You're on your own here. This podcast is for your entertainment and education only, and I really hope you enjoyed it.